Welcome to the June 11, 2020 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today we'll review results of a trial of venetoclax plus low-dose cytarabine in untreated patients with acute myeloid leukemia who were ineligible for intensive chemotherapy. Learn how HRI-regulated transcription factor 4 activates BCL-11A transcription to silence fetal hemoglobin expression, and assess new data demonstrating that aromatase is a novel neosubstrate of cerebellon responsible for thrombocytopenia caused by immunomodulatory drugs. Our first segment examines data presented in the blood article entitled Venetoclax plus LDAC for patients with untreated AML ineligible for intensive chemotherapy. Phase 3 randomized placebo-controlled trial by Andrew Way from Alfred Hospital and Monash University, Australia, and international colleagues. The treatment of older individuals with acute myeloid leukemia, or AML, who are deemed ineligible for intensive treatment, often referred to as unfit patients, is a great challenge in clinical practice. Unfit patients need therapeutic approaches other than the commonly used intensive chemotherapy and transplantation. Treatment of such unfit older patients has become an area of intense clinical investigation. More than a decade ago, a trial demonstrated that subcutaneous low-dose cytarabine, or LDAC, resulted in superior survival compared with that of hydroxyurea and supportive care in patients aged 60 years and older who were deemed unfit for intensive therapy. Since then, LDAC has become an accepted approach for unfit patients with AML. However, use of LDAC has been limited because of its marginal survival benefit and its lack of efficacy in the subset of patients with AML with cytogenetically poor risk disease. Venetoclax is an oral inhibitor of the anti-apoptotic molecule BCL2, and although most of the experience with it to date has been obtained in lymphoid malignancies, Interest in the use of venetoclax and AML has increased in the last few years. Several small single-arm studies with relatively immature follow-up have suggested promising therapeutic activity. While venetoclax produces a modest overall response rate of 19% in AML, emerging data suggest that it may enhance anti-leukemic activity when combined with other compounds. For example, rates of CR and CRI that is, complete response with incomplete hematologic recovery, were 54% and 67% when venetoclax was combined with the hypomethylating agents azacytidine and decytabine, respectively, in elderly patients with treatment-naive AML. Patients 18 years and older with newly diagnosed AML ineligible for intensive chemotherapy were enrolled in this international Phase three randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. 211 patients were randomized 2 to 1 to LDAC 20 mg per meter squared on days 1 to 10, plus either venetoclax, ramped up to a target dose of 600 mg daily, or placebo, in 28-day cycles. The primary endpoint was overall survival, or OS. Secondary endpoints included response rates, transfusion independence, and event-free survival, or EFS. Results demonstrated that the addition of venetoclax to LDAC resulted in a large difference in rates of CR and CRI, compared to LDAC alone, 48% versus 13%, 
While the planned primary analysis showed that the venetoclax arm reduced the hazard ratio for death by 25% compared to the LDAC alone arm, with overall survivals of 7.2 versus 4.1 months, this did not reach statistical significance. However, an unplanned post hoc multivariate analysis, which controlled for baseline prognostic factors such as de novo versus secondary AML, cytogenetic risk group, ECOG performance status, and age, and another unplanned analysis six months later, showed a statistically significant survival advantage for the combination of venetoclax plus LDAC. Secondary endpoints, including response rate, EFS, duration of therapy, transfusion independence, and patient-reported outcomes, also indicated an advantage for the venetoclax-LDAC combination. These data indicate that the combination of venetoclax and LDAC is better than LDAC alone. As Drs. Lowenberg and Hulls point out in their accompanying commentary, while these data are very encouraging, the results show a rapid decrease in survival to about 25% or less within 18 months, and EFS declined to even lower levels. The increase in median survival from 4.9 to 7.2 months in the pre-planned analysis and 8.4 months after longer follow-up is less than that reported by investigators for the same regimen in a previous single-arm study. The gap between the wide difference in CR rates but the much smaller difference in survival might be related to the limited depth of responses following venetoclax-LDAC combination therapy or the early development of resistance. Additionally, a substantial portion of the study population might have been not only unfit but also too frail to benefit from treatment that introduces toxicity. This speaks to the challenge of selecting criteria for what defines unfit AML in this already heterogeneous study population. Regarding safety, the study showed that the adverse events associated with venetoclax-LDAC combination were manageable. Key grade 3 and greater adverse events for the combination versus LDAC monotherapy were febrile neutropenia, 32% versus 29%, neutropenia, 47% versus 16%, and thrombocytopenia, 45% versus 37%. In summary, this study represents a valuable step toward better outcomes for unfit patients with AML who cannot be safely offered intensive chemotherapy. As frontline therapy, venetoclax plus LDAC demonstrated a clinically meaningful improvement in remission rates and OS compared with those of LDAC alone, with a manageable safety profile. Further evaluation of response and OS by subgroup analyses, such as by mutation status, will be of particular interest. For example, the study preliminarily identified worse outcomes in FLT3-mutated patients, whereas patients with NPM1 and IDH1 and IDH2 mutant AML experienced better outcomes. Next, we'll discuss the blood article entitled, HRI-Regulated Transcription Factor ATF4 Activates BCL11A Transcription to Silence Fetal Hemoglobin Expression by Peng Huang of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and colleagues. Reactivation of fetal hemoglobin remains a critical goal in the treatment of patients with sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia. The investigators previously discovered that silencing the fetal gamma globin gene requires the erythroid-specific alpha subunit of eukaryotic initiation factor II kinase HRI a heme-regulated kinase highly expressed in hemoglobinized erythroid cells. 
This suggests that HRI might be a pharmacologic target for raising fetal hemoglobin levels. Depletion of HRI increases expression of the gamma globin gene and thus fetal hemoglobin in human erythroblasts. Persistent fetal hemoglobin expression lessens the severity of beta thalassemia and sickle cell anemia. Various approaches to reactivate fetal hemoglobin expression have been pursued as potential treatments for beta hemoglobinopathies. HRI changes protein synthesis to adapt to stress. Most notably, HRI is activated in erythroid precursors when iron or heme are deficient, during environmental stress, such as oxidative or osmotic stress, or heat shock, and in beta thalassemia. This leads to coordinated translational regulation known as the Integrated Stress Response, or ISR. The investigators used a CRISPR-Cas9-guided loss-of-function genetic screen in human erythroblasts of 1,446 transcription factors using fetal hemoglobin levels as a readout. They identified activating transcription factor 4, or ATF4, a known HRI-regulated protein, as a novel gamma-globin regulator. ATF4 directly stimulates transcription of the BCL11A gene, which represses gamma-globin transcription by binding to its enhancer. The investigators confirmed the role of ATF4 as a negative regulator of fetal hemoglobin expression in primary cells. They demonstrated that ATF4 binds to the plus 55 enhancer of the BCL11A gene to increase the expression of BCL11A, which decreases gamma-globin gene expression. Importantly, BCL11A expression is reduced by depletion of ATF4, or removal of the ATF4 binding element within the plus 55 enhancer. Conversely, overexpression of ATF4 increases BCL11A expression and represses the increased gamma-globin gene expression in HRI-depleted cells. This study thus implicates HRI-ISR stress signaling in repressing fetal hemoglobin production through enhanced translational regulation of ATF4 and subsequent upregulation of BCL11A to silence gamma-globin gene expression. Additionally, this study identifies the BCL11A plus 55 enhancer as a potential target for therapeutic genome editing. The authors were surprised to find that HRI-ATF4-mediated blockage of fetal hemoglobin expression was observed in human cells, but not in mice. HRI knockout mice have normal levels of BCL11A, suggesting species-specific regulation. The researchers explained this phenomenon by demonstrating that the analogous ATF4 motif at the murine BCL11A enhancer is non-essential. As noted in the accompanying commentary by Jane Jane Chen from MIT, the difference observed may be due, in part, to the models available for research in murine and human systems. The in vivo system available from genetically modified mice is less stressful compared to the in vitro cell culture conditions used in human studies that can induce the HRI-ATF4 stress response. She notes the importance of needing to test the role of HRI under stress conditions in homozygous sickle mice. In summary, the researchers have uncovered a linear signaling pathway from HRI to ATF4 to BCL11A to gamma-globin expression. The role of HRI-ISR signaling in humans should be further investigated under more physiological conditions, such as examining the association of HRI or ATF4 with fetal hemoglobin production in patients with beta thalassemia and sickle cell anemia. 
These results may point to new treatments for beta hemoglobinopathies, which may not always be feasible using murine models of globin gene regulation. In the final segment of this podcast, we'll evaluate the article published in Blood, entitled, Aromatase is a novel neosubstrate of Cerebron, responsible for immunomodulatory drugs-induced thrombocytopenia, by Taro Tochigi of Kyushu University Graduate School of Medical Sciences in Japan and colleagues. Immunomodulatory drugs, or IMIDs, such as lenalidomide and pomalidomide, are key agents for treating multiple myeloma, as well as myelodysplastic syndrome with the chromosome 5Q deletion. However, they can induce thrombocytopenia that often results in their discontinuation. IMIDs exert their effects through recruitment of neosubstrates to cerebron, a receptor of the E3 ubiquitin ligase complex. Identification of cell-specific neosubstrates is key to understanding the effects of IMIDs. Platelet formation begins with hematopoietic stem cells in bone marrow, forming mature megakaryocytes. Following maturation, megakaryocytes undergo remodeling and reorganization to extend long protrusions or proplatelets. If proplatelet formation is disturbed, generation of new platelets is decreased and thrombocytopenia may develop. The investigators sought to identify the molecular mechanism underlying thrombocytopenia caused by IMIDs. They were able to demonstrate that IMIDs strongly impair proplatelet formation through inhibition of estradiol signaling in human megakaryocytes. They also identified aromatase, an enzyme critical for estradiol biosynthesis, as a novel neosubstrate of cerebron. To determine what causes IMID-induced thrombocytopenia, the researchers first analyzed the effects of IMIDs on megakaryocyte development and platelet production. They confirmed that there was no decrease in the number of megakaryocytes. In addition, IMIDs neither inhibited the maturation nor endomitosis of megakaryocytes. The investigators postulated that IMIDs could affect proplatelet formation. In fact, exposure of megakaryocytes to lenalidomide or pomalidomide strongly inhibited the formation of proplatelets. This was confirmed at an ultrastructural level by electron micrographs that showed that IMID-exposed megakaryocytes lacked demarcation membrane systems, an essential step for proplatelet formation. To determine how IMIDs decrease proplatelet formation, the researchers performed transcriptome analysis of megakaryocytes derived from CD34-positive hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells with and without IMIDs. Results demonstrated that the gene expression signatures of estradiol signaling were decreased in the lenalidomide-treated cells. This finding corroborated previous research, identifying the importance of the estradiol pathway in the initiation of proplatelet formation in an autocrine manner. The investigators then added exogenous estradiol to IMID-treated megakaryocytes in culture and found that the number of proplatelet-producing megakaryocytes was restored. The authors hypothesized that a protein required for estradiol synthesis might be a neosubstrate of cerebron, and that its destabilization by IMIDs might explain the deficient estradiol signaling in megakaryocytes and reduction in proplatelet formation. The biosynthesis of all steroid hormones requires 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase. In addition, aromatase mediates the final pathway step that converts testosterone into estradiol.
While both enzymes are strongly expressed in normal human megakaryocytes derived from CD34-positive cells, only the expression of aromatase was significantly reduced within 24 hours after IMID treatment. The investigators then performed co-immunoprecipitation of lysates of aromatase and cerebron from K562 cells. They found that cerebron appeared with aromatase only when lenalidomide was present. Likewise, co-immunoprecipitation with a mutant cerebron missing the imid binding region failed to show binding. Notably, the imid's mediated aromatase degradation was abrogated by the proteasome inhibitor MG132 and by the selective inhibitor of NED8 activating enzyme MLN4924, suggesting that the aromatase degradation was dependent on the ubiquitin proteasome pathway. Finally, bone marrow samples of multiple myeloma patients whose treatment included imids were compared with those of patients not receiving imids. Remarkably, those patients with imid-induced thrombocytopenia did not have detectable levels of aromatase in their bone marrow or in isolated megakaryocytes. However, patients not receiving IMIDs had normal levels of aromatase in their marrow. In summary, the investigators combined elegant ex vivo and mechanistic data to demonstrate that IMIDs facilitate the recruitment of the neosubstrate aromatase to cerebron, resulting in degradation of aromatase via the ubiquitin proteasome pathway. These data also reinforce the importance of estradiol signaling in proplatelet formation and how its interruption underpins the basis for IMID-related thrombocytopenia. The results should facilitate further development of IMIDs that do not affect degradation of aromatase. This study also has implications for aromatase-driven diseases, such as breast cancer, for which IMIDs may provide an alternative mechanism for targeting aromatase activity compared with currently available aromatase inhibitors. For a list of additional authors as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.